until you can kind of take care of yourself and really kind of grow yourself, then you're not able to take care of those around you and provide as much love and support. You're listening to Investing for Good, a show that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. And now, here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, Julie, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, how's your day going so far? Yeah, it's going all right. It's uh, it's funny because we're as we're recording here, the it's like sunny and then the clouds roll in and then it's sunny. And so my face <laughs> looks like really bright and white, but it's going okay. Yeah, I can't complain. Well, I mean, well, you're you're sitting in front of the window, which for most people is like, okay, great, big deal. But it's a big deal because you've yeah. shifted your entire room. You used to be facing another wall in your office and now you're facing the window and you just spent all this time <laughs> Marie condoing your entire house. So tell us about that. I did, yes. Oh my gosh. I can't even tell you. I am going into the new year like, what? Like, I am here. I have arrived. And this year is going to be so good because I literally just spent the last three weeks of December doing nothing but cleaning every inch of my home, every box that was shoved in a corner when my before when I only had one kid, if you can even imagine that there was a time when I had one child. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just like cleaning all that stuff up and getting... I must have done like, I don't know, 10 trips to Salvation Army to donate just everything and anything. And now everything has a home, which is like Marie Kondo's way, mm-hmm. right? You hold your clothes a certain way and you don't keep anything that doesn't bring you joy or serve a purpose, right? And so that's exactly how everything's set up. Although I think that's so funny because we had all these, I had all these tech issues this morning and my setup is not being used the way I envisioned <laughs> it. So, you know, uh, what are you going to do? But yeah. Uh, well, well, you know, as, as we had talked about, you know, cleaning up clutter is not just about, a lot of people think it's just about the clutter, but it's about so much more than that. It <sighs> impacts so much more of your life than you even realize. Yeah. And that's the thing that I didn't realize is like how much, you know, when I, when I would say like, oh, I'm feeling so stressed. Mm -hmm. A lot of that stress was just feeling like the house was like not in order. And as, Mm -hmm. as I transitioned from working outside of the home to working in the home, now I'm here all day. So I'm working here and then I'm here with the kids too. And then I sleep. It's just, it was like so crazy. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. So now that well, now you're all set. You're all set for the new year. I am. I am. Well, on today's podcast, We have a special guest, Michael Kwan, and he blogs at financiallyalert.com. And Michael is unique because he retired at the ripe old age of 36. And after that, he then spent years and and still is um, being a stay-at-home dad, which is so incredible that he was able to reach financial independence and then really design the life that he wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's so cool that, you know, his whole purpose of trying to achieve financial independence really came from the birth of his first child, his daughter. And, you know, realizing that at one years old, this is a very special time in her life and will be for the next couple of years and that he wanted to stay home with her. And that's a very similar story for me when I had my third child, third and last, um, is that I realized that this was it, you know, and he's not going to be young forever. And this is such a special time and still continues to be um, what drives me to do what what we do. Um, so yeah, love that that's where he's coming from and all the stories that he shared about how he got to where he is. Uh, a lot of it was around mindset. Uh, and um, so it was such a great conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, without further ado, let's jump into it. Here's our conversation with Michael Kwan. Michael, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's it's a pleasure. Of course. We're so glad that you're here. Now, Michael, you and I first met at FinCon, and I remember the moment I was introduced to you by our mutual friend, Alma, who told me that you had reached financial independence and retired 
at the ripe old age of 36. 36 mm -hmm. <laughs> decades before most people even dare to think about retirement. And from that moment to now, I seriously, I've never seen you without a huge smile on your face. So naturally, <laughs> I'm curious, back when you were working a nine to five job, were you, you know, just as jolly all the time? Or is that a result of you now having retired and living the life that you want to live? <laughs> That's actually a really good question. No one's ever asked me that question before. I think for the most part, I typically had a smile on my face. However, there were times like when I was running an IT business where it got pretty stressful. So um, there were times, yeah, I definitely didn't have a smile on my face. So I would say that there was more smiles on my face nowadays. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> well, tell us about that IT business and uh, your, your journey leading up to enabling you to retire at 36. Absolutely. So, you know, when I was young, I came from a middle-class family, although at the time my parents were pretty frugal. So when I was really little, I actually thought we were poor because like we would have like hand-me-down clothes that I would like holes in my, in my pants and whatnot. We had this babysitter that would pick us up in this junker car and I was so embarrassed. And <laughs> oh, Asian family. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> and so, you know, I had these very vivid memories when I was young about like wanting to be rich. I was just like, you know, it's a tiny kid. And I was like, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be super rich and, and all these things. And it wasn't, you know, really that I wanted to be rich. It's that I didn't want to live a life of lack. I wanted to live a life of abundance. And so what happened was I started getting really interested. I started, you know, being an entrepreneurial spirit at school, trading baseball cards and, you know, things of that nature. <laughs> and luckily for me, I actually had some uncles who did very well for themselves. And they actually retired very early on, predominantly from investing in real estate. They were, one of them was like a doctor. The other one was an entrepreneur. So he did with uh, businesses and investments. And being able to kind of see that just gave me the insight that, hey, it's possible, Right. And so when I went to school and college, I studied economics because it was something that was the closest thing to business that they had at UC San Diego, which is where I went to school. And then when I exited, I was like a lot of other college students. I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, I don't really want to <laughs> choose a specific career. You know, I want to explore. And at the time, it was during the dot-com boom. So all the money was going to tech. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go into tech. And I was a computer gamer before, so I knew how to take apart computers and whatnot. And that's ultimately how I ended up in the IT space. Um, I worked for a company for a good year or so, maybe a year and a half. And then 9-11 happened. So you know that really shook the core of the economy at the time. The company that I was working for basically imploded. And during the sixth round of layoffs, I was just like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to stick around here anymore. <laughs> so I contacted a couple of my other friends in the company. I said, you know what? We could go out and do this ourselves. And we were basically the segment of the company that was IT support and services and integration. And we were essentially the only profitable part of the company. And the rest of it was just kind of imploding. So we left, did our own thing, and basically built a company from the ground up over the course of 10 years. And that really allowed me not only to obviously learn about finances in the business sense, but also how to, um, I think, really just persist in something. And along the way, I was also reading personal finance books. I was learning a lot about investing. And that's really kind of what was the segue into building the infrastructure, so to speak, to allow me to ultimately retire at 36. And I say retire from a traditional nine to five, because ultimately, as we'll talk later, I'm sure, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that I stopped working. Actually, I, I work more nowadays than I did before when I had the company and I was working a lot. Um, but now it's about choice and freedom and whatnot. Yeah. And I think that's such an important distinction to make is, you know, whereas before you were maybe working because you were um, trying to, you know, after that paycheck for your family and the benefits, you know, and so that you could provide for your family, whereas maybe now you get to work and you get to do the things that you're passionate about, which is what we're always trying to inspire people to do. Because the more that we can get people to do what they're passionate about, the more that we can help to change the world. Absolutely. 
so 10 years you spent building that business mm -hmm. before you exited that business. So during that time, were you, you know, were you investing on the side or were you fully focused on that business? And did you plan to eventually sell it? Or did you think that, okay, this business is going to be my baby. I'm going to, you know, grow this for the rest of my life. Sure. That's a great question. You know, when I was building the business, I always kind of left it open-ended to a certain extent. So I was like, well, if it's profitable enough and there's enough cash flow, then I'll just hang on to it and use it to fuel cash flow and then funnel it into other investments. Or if it gets to a certain point where I can exit, then I'll exit it. So I never really put a cap on it. However, I did build enough systems and processes in place so that in the event that I did want to sell it, it was something that could actually be passed on to someone else or another company. That's so important for businesses is to, whether you're going to sell it or not, to start building those systems in place so that if and when, you know, that day comes that somebody else could step in and take it over. Yeah. And then to your other question, did I invest during that period? And absolutely. During college was when I really started kind of like reading like just tons of different books and personal finance, personal development. And what I did was I started, you know, right when I got out of college, essentially when I got my first job in a tech company, um, you know, all of a sudden you have this influx of cash. And so I was like, oh, this is great. You know, you're living off ramen and like whatever else in college. <laughs> and all of a sudden you get all this money. So I, I kind of, I was smart enough at that point to say, okay, you know what? Let's set aside some of this because I'm already living like large compared to where I was before. And so why don't I just cut out 30% and put it on the side? And so I started investing mm -hmm. into stocks and um, saving it into different savings accounts and automating it back then, um, like you know a lot of us do nowadays. And it was just a way to just kind of build that muscle. So I did that all the way mm -hmm. throughout um, building the business, as well as then at the tail end, I started investing in real estate as, as well. How did you make that transition into real estate? Well, again, it was I was very interested in real estate for quite a while um, because I had those uncles that had done very well and allowed them mm -hmm. to retire early. And so mm -hmm. I was, you know, learning a lot about it all throughout. However, I was kind of waiting and waiting because at the time when I really got interested, it was around 2006 or so. And so things were really, really booming at the time and the markets were really, you know, accelerating. But the problem with that was that the cash flow wasn't there. So I was reading all these books about how to cash flow invest in real estate and they're like, make sure your numbers work, make sure your numbers work. But everyone else around me is like, oh, I'm buying these houses in Vegas. And like, they're just going up like 50 grand, like in like three months and stuff. I'm like, oh, wow, that's mm -hmm. cool. So I was like, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And, you know, the more I spent time just looking at the numbers, I ultimately finally said, okay, the numbers make, you know, I'm going to follow the numbers. And so I essentially just watched the entire market go, go, go up and then implode. And then when it finally fell out, you know, in 2008, 2009, and then there was, you know, this crash. And so I started buying around 2010 through 2012. And so, you know, fortunately, I was able to time it in that regard. Real estate's a little bit of a slower market. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't based off of timing. It was based off of the cash flow. Mm -hmm. And what were you buying when you first started getting into real estate? So I was looking at single family homes in the Las Vegas uh, suburbs, essentially. Is that where you are, where you live now? Uh, no, I actually live in San Diego, California. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. How did you, what about Vegas attracted you? Um, so one of the things that I realized was that in California, especially when I was looking, you know, the prices were ridiculous in terms of what the prices were compared to the rents and the ratio between them. So I'm like, I can never, you know, without being a professional investor that's going in and finding actual real deals, I was, you know, part-time just like, you know, um, investor that was just looking on the MLS and other things. I'm like, I'm never going to find something in California that's going to meet that criteria of, you know, building cash flow from day one. And so I was like, let me look outside of California. And so there was a couple different companies that kind of offered some turnkey investments. There was another company that just set up a network of people that offered different, you know, cash flowing opportunities. And so I literally went and toured all around um, the United States. I flew out to like Oklahoma City, went through Texas, went through Florida, um, even Georgia, as well as Las Vegas. And ultimately, I settled on Las Vegas because it's pretty close to home. 
Um, we occasionally just go out there to hang out and have fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, that'd be mm-hmm. a nice write off, um, yeah. mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. as checking on the properties. And I kind of knew the area a little bit. So because of all those factors, I ultimately settled in um, choosing Vegas. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I think that's really uh, such a good idea to do like a tour of like the US, like different markets that you're interested in. I never did that. I just you know, read something on bigger pockets and was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea <laughs> and sent $50,000 over to some guy I never met to buy a house I never saw. And, you know, my husband wasn't too happy with me. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, tour the U.S. That sounds like that probably would have been a good idea. Um, but yeah, I never did that. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. So you had like these different markets in mind and then you just like set up like all these trips to kind of go from place to place and had your appointments set up and everything or exactly. Yeah. So essentially it was, I set up appointments and then it was based, all the areas are based off of parts of the country that were, you know, cash flow positive, relatively speaking to the rest of the country. And then my wife and I, we basically kind of did that trip and we also incorporated a lot of food into that trip as well because we're, we like to eat. So we're like (laughs) eating barbecue and all these other things. So it was fun. So and when, when you were in, on that tour and in those different markets, what were you looking for exactly? Were you looking at the market or the, the neighborhoods? Were you looking at specific properties that you might buy? Were you looking to interview property managers and agents? Like what ultimately pushed Las Vegas over, um, over the line for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And actually it was all of those, you know, I was really, I really wanted to kind of get a feel for the neighborhood. Being that I was a pretty green investor, I just, you know, in hindsight now, it's more about the numbers, to be honest. So in theory, I could have just done it without looking at any of them. However, at the time, I was more driven by certainty. So I wanted to kind of go out there and just kind of get that feel. Um, I wanted to see a tangible product and I wanted to, yeah, interact with some of the people that were on the ground over there. Um, which I was, I'm glad I did, you know, for the first ones. Mm-hmm. Um, in hindsight now, you know, that takes a little bit more time and effort. Um, but I'm mm-hmm. so glad that, yeah, that I did it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was 2010 to 2012, you said. And so how many properties did you buy during that time? So I ended up probably putting offers in like over a dozen or so, but I only actually closed on three. And the reason... Well, it was actually I was actually surprised because there was actually a ton of investors at the same time that were actually looking at the same deals that I was. And I was like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. this is actually competitive. And so mm-hmm. you had to be fast and be willing to kind of just put your money in and make your offer automatically. And in the beginning, just for people that are out there starting, just so you know, I mean, like in the beginning, it's okay to be cautious and whatnot. But as you get mm-hmm. more and more comfortable a faster money speaks and you're able to kind of make a deal and close it faster. So in hindsight, had I basically made cash offers, I would have been more competitive in that regard and other, you know, other small nuances like that. But nonetheless, I was out there kind of taking action and just kind of making offers. But the first property that I actually got was actually a big debacle. So (laughs) the, the first income property that I had um, I was, I was like terrified. I was like, all right, this is my first property. I, I made sure all the numbers were working. I'm like, all right, I'm going to put like, you know, 15, 20% down. And yeah, the numbers look good. I'm going to make a few hundred, few hundred dollars of cash flow every month. And everything looked, you know, great on paper. And then I went and made the offer. I thought I was being smart because I was like, all right, I'm going to make this my second home. And so I'll have a lower interest rate instead of a traditional, you know, renter's loan or landlord loan. And so I didn't really dig down into the, to the HOA bylaws or whatnot. Oh, no. <clears throat> Turns out that I actually couldn't rent out the property. <laughs> and so my first income property minor. Oh my God. <laughs> became my vacation home for the next four years. Oh my <laughs> and by vacation home, I mean like whenever we went there and visited, it was just like cleaning up the yard to like clear up any HOA violations oh that we had on the property God. over the last like, oh quarter. No. Yeah. It was a nightmare. But, but in hindsight, you know, it was, it was a mistake that, you know, I can laugh at now. But at the time it was, you know, kind of painful. The good news is I ultimately ended up buying the house across the street that didn't have that HOA restriction. Still have mm-hmm. that one today. It's done very well. It's appreciated probably like, you know, 150%, as well as the cash flow is consistent. So the appreciation was just the icing on the cake. And then I bought another property, maybe like 10 miles from there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how did you get familiar with with the area? Like, I mean, that's one thing that I struggled with. I ended up buying a home, as I mentioned, without seeing it and just looking on Google Maps and thinking this looks like a decent area and, you know, checking like crime.org or whatever it is to see how much crime <laughs> happens in that area and tried to do my due diligence remotely. But I mean, how did you you know, say, okay, this is the house. This is the neighborhood. As we know, real estate is so block by block and location dependent. So how did you, you know, decide where Vegas is obviously not a small area. How did Mm -hmm. you figure out where to go? Yeah. So back to my uncle that did very well for himself. He actually had a condo in Las Vegas um, that they just keep for themselves just, you know, for family to come out. And so we would go stay Mm -hmm. at their condo occasionally. And so because it was kind of off on the on the outskirts, like I actually was mm-hmm. able to kind of get to know some of those neighborhoods in the surrounding area that way. Got and, it. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd say a lot of that. But for other areas that I visited, I would say there was enough time just to go visit and get a feel for the neighborhood. So it's not like I had to necessarily stay there. There was places, you know, in hindsight that I wish I had invested in Texas at the time. Texas was number two after. If I hadn't invested in Las Vegas, Austin and Dallas were actually on the the top two um, that would have been, or top two and three that would have happened had I not um, ended up in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these days, are you still um, actively looking to acquire more properties or what, what's your investment strategy these days now that you are a rich uncle yourself? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So once I basically retired from my, you know, corporate job, so to speak, I actually took the time to go back and be a stay-at-home dad. So I've actually been a stay-at-home dad for the last six years. So that took a lot of time just kind of being present with my kids. So I wasn't really able to kind of go out actively searching for other properties. So lo and behold, there was this thing called crowdsourcing or crowdfunding real estate and then syndications. Obviously, um, you guys are the experts in that. But those are things that I was, you know, starting to become, you know, familiar with. And I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, I actually don't have to purchase individual properties anymore. And so that's why, you know, I only have, you know, those properties in Vegas. And then I have another one in San Diego and some other ones in California that just through other circumstances. But I think what happened was the market shifted a little bit as well. And it wasn't the same as before. So things have appreciated significantly since then. So again, now the cash flow is kind of back to not really making as much sense as it once was. And Mm -hmm. so I'm more interested in finding deals that are kind of done for me so that I don't think Mm -hmm. about it. So again, you know, the syndications that you guys bring forward are great because they're properties that a professional real estate investor is going out and vetting. And then you can do your due diligence on it. Obviously, that's an important part of it. But you at least then get to participate in the upside of that. So I really kind of love that. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing some syndications as well as realty shares at the time. They were a bigger company back back in the day. And so I did probably about a dozen to 14 different deals with them, just kind of investing alongside different developers. And the one thing that I liked that there was a portion of time in 2000, I think it was like 2014, 2015, I was basically investing in developers that would go into very rich neighborhoods in California. So they would go to like Beverly Hills and find these really old homes that were like 60 years old, knock them down, throw up some huge mansion. And they were like returning like, you know, 18% IR to the investors. Um, it was an incredible time. That, those times are gone, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to yeah. strike while the iron is hot. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, so I'm curious. Well, I mean, all of your financials are available on your blog, right? So like your net worth and all your um, streams of passive income, all of that is on your blog. But tell us, you know, these days, how much of your overall portfolio is real estate versus um, stocks or other types of investments? Yeah, real estate definitely still makes up a pretty good chunk of our net worth and overall assets. I would say in terms of net worth, it's probably close to 60% or so of our overall net worth, um, give or take. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that brings me to my other question, which is, like I said, all of your financials are available on the (laughs) World Wide Web. Why? (laughs) (laughs) 
That's, that's a fair question. That's obviously not a lot of people do that. So basically when I basically came home to be a stay at home dad, it was great. I was completely present with my kids at the same time though, I had just shifted from literally running a company with 12 people and it was a complete like mind shift, right? So I needed an outlet. So the blog financiallyalert.com actually is a function of that. So it was my little side project that I did late at night once the kids went to sleep. And it allowed me to kind of interact with adults like other bloggers and, and people online, as well as ultimately share knowledge. I figured, you know, mm-hmm. if this is something that I could do, other people can do it and, you know, share the wealth essentially. And so one thing that I realized when I was going through and learning a lot about personal development and other things was that people would talk about all these different things, but they were very, I guess, not specific about certain numbers. And so I was like, well, I didn't kind of like that. I kind of want to know if I'm learning from someone, then I want to know kind of where they're at. So for example, like if you want to learn from me and you want to kind of get to where I'm at, I'm full disclosure. I'm completely transparent. You know, my numbers, my exact numbers. And if you're, you know, someone that is just exploring to see if this, should I listen to him? You know, maybe you're someone that needs to listen to someone else that's above me and beyond me, but at least I give you that information. So it's kind of in line with what you're looking for. So I put those numbers out there as a learning resource. And I also Mm -hmm. put it out there because it's incredibly important to know your numbers, whether it's real estate, whether it's personal finance, you need to know your numbers. It's your dashboard. It's your way to know if you're moving towards your goal or away from your goal. And so, you know, I always say, you know, you need to know how to calculate your net worth. You need to know your net worth, never value yourself by your net worth, but you need to understand it and you need to basically get comfortable with it. So, you know, again, I was very, I was on the edge as far as whether I should share it or not. But in the end, I decided to share it because I was just like, you know what, I'm going to do that and just share it out there as a, as a way to be transparent um, for good or bad. And, you know, some people like that, some people don't, and so be it. Everyone has their own opinion. I think it's important for people to hear what you just said, Mm -hmm. that the numbers in your personal, you know, home economy, you know, your personal finances are so important. You know, you're essentially running a business Mm -hmm. in your own home. And so for me, that's really where, you know, my journey started to financial freedom was taking a hard look at, you know, our finances and trying to understand what's coming in, what's going out. It still is. Mm -hmm. I still have an Excel spreadsheet that I update almost on a monthly or quarterly basis that, uh, you know, looks at how much are our credit card, you know, uh, expenses. Are we going up? Are we going down? Mm -hmm. You know, where's our income? Is that going up or is that going down? And what is left to take home? Can we afford to do X? And, you know, having a good, you know, like you said, having that as our dashboard, that's really what you know, guides the decisions that we make in, in our lives in terms of, you know, can we afford to take this vacation? Do we need to step back? Do we need to ramp up on the income side? Do we need to pull back on the expenses side? And, you know, all of these things. And so I think it's so important that you, you know, you talk about that because um, I think not enough people do that and they put it on auto and they're just like, well, I'm just, this is, this is what I have, you know, and it doesn't need to be that way. You can have more with what you have if you're intentional about it and you really take the time to understand the direction about that. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you said that I want to highlight is that you said never value yourself by your net worth. Mm-hmm. And I think so mm-hmm. many people get caught in that. They're like, oh, I can't tell yeah. people what my net worth is that will expose me, you know, but you know, it, it is, a, it's just a number and everybody's on a journey and everybody's on a different part of the journey. So I'm so glad that you said that. Yeah. Yeah. You can't let that define you because it's going to just hold you back um, or make you think that you're more than you might be. (laughs) You know, Um, you might think, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I have a million dollars in net worth. I'm rich, you know, and, you know, I guess depending on where you live, you might be, but, um, you know, so I think that that is so true. Um, So yeah, good, good insights. We'll get back to our conversation with Michael in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. 
We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now... Back to our chat with Michael Kwan. I'm curious, what? How did you get on this journey to financial independence? Like, what? Like, what was it? Having kids? You said, you know, you made the decision to be a stay-at-home dad. Like, how did you? What drove you to that? And, and I'm asking because for me, it was such a. I didn't know that I was looking for financial independence. You know, I thought I a little cash flow might be a good idea on the side. Uh, and as I kept pulling and you know pulling back through everything and asking why and keep peeling back the onion to find out why why was I doing this? Why was I doing this? And I got to the point of financial independence and realized that's what I wanted. So I'm curious for you, how did you get there? Um, and what does financial independence mean to you? Yeah, no, that's a great question because financial independence can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to define it, obviously in cash flow terms, but also for yourself and what you're ultimately, mm -hmm. your family situation looks like and how things are mm -hmm. laid out. So to that extent, some people may be confused because, for example, like we still have income coming in for my wife, who's a school teacher, and she mm -hmm. loves working. That's her passion is to be a high school biology teacher and teaching the AP classes. And so that's what she loves to do. So we allow some of our investments to stay invested in specific areas and we don't touch it. And that's more focused on growth versus cash flow. But if she decided she didn't want to work, then we would probably have to geo-arbitrage and live somewhere else and create cash flow from some of the investments that we have and move things around. But because we're not at that place and because she wants to work, then we can kind of have that flexibility. So first and foremost, I think, yeah, for myself, I just wanted to be at a place where I didn't have to answer to anyone else. And to a certain extent, I was able to do that by owning the business However, the, the irony of all this was that, you know, once you have employees and whatnot, I kind of created a job for myself to a certain extent. Yeah. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I was like finding myself at the office, you know, more than nine to five. And so I was like, you know, am I really at this place of freedom that I envisioned when I was, you know, a young child? And I think, again, that vision came from seeing, you know, what my other uncles were able to do. And, you know, they were basically home with their families doing whatever the heck they wanted. And I was like, mm -hmm. dude, you guys don't even work. Like, I thought you were a dentist. <laughs> and like, you're, you're like, you don't even like work on anyone's like, teeth anymore. Um, and so, so I was just like, you know, that would be really, that would be really great. And so what happened is when we finally exited the company, you know, I got an influx of cash. So then I was like, okay, well, I got to put some of this to work. And again, I was, you know, investing in some of those properties as well. And then I also took a chunk of that and started investing in the uh, syndications and the realty shares, as well as a few other you know, investments. But I realized at that point, it wasn't actually my intention to completely exit at that point. But mm -hmm. what really drove me was wanting to be present for my daughter, who was one at the time. So mm -hmm. the option was, okay, I can you know, basically go back, find a job that's you know, within the tech space. And it would have been really easy to do. But my daughter's one. This is a very unique time in her life. And what if I could just spend the next five, six years at home? And then my son was born shortly thereafter, a couple of years later. And then I was like, well, what if I just extend this till he goes to kindergarten? And so mm -hmm. essentially, 
that was kind of my idea was let's give this a try, right? Let's try this whole kind of financial independence thing out and see if we can even survive how our net worth does. And that was the other part of doing actually tracking the net worth and the cash flow was what's going to happen when I actually exit and I'm not making like $13,000 a month anymore. And it's down mm-hmm. to basically, you know, zero in the beginning. And it's grown over time a little bit, you know, with my side hustles. But what ultimately will happen? This is a big social mm-hmm. experiment. And let's just share it with everyone yeah. else because that's what bloggers mm-hmm. do, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, knock on wood, we had a very obviously great bull run this last 10 years. And so yeah, I was yeah. able to, you know, stay at home with my kids. Our net worth has increased, you know, another seven figures in that time period without me working. And, you know, been very blessed. Having said that, what happened if we had the opposite happen in the economy and things went down? Life would have probably looked different. Maybe I would have, you know, you know, shifted some investments around different ways and focused more on cash flow, in which point then, you know, it would the net worth wouldn't have been as high as it is today, but maybe I could have sustained my lifestyle in a different manner. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was, yeah, a little bit of an experiment and just exploring and figuring out what it is that I like doing, what I didn't like doing and being able to explore all these different side hustles was great, Mm -hmm. um, during Mm -hmm. that period. Um, but primarily being present with the kids and the family was, you know, the driving force. Yeah. You glossed over something and if, if our listeners blink, they would have missed it. But you said in the time since you've stopped working, your net worth has gone up by seven figures. That is just, that's incredible that you stopped having that steady paycheck. Most people would think, well, that steady paycheck is what's going to increase my net worth. But Mm -hmm. you were able to set up your assets and your portfolio and your investments so that they could grow even though you weren't putting in that time. Mm -hmm. So you no longer had to trade your time for money, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's what we all want, right? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I I didn't realize at the time that the compound interest would actually start kicking in um, as much as it did. But because we had such a strong bull run, property prices, the equities markets, they just kept going up. And so because of saving and investing along the way over those last 10 years, and even before that a little bit, it really started to ramp up and start to carry itself. And there were some days where I would just be like, you know, what if I had gone back to work and actually had more money to put into the markets and whatnot? And I thought about it. I'm like, that opportunity cost was probably a million dollars or more. And yeah. and then I asked myself, okay, on my deathbed, what happens when I look back? Is a million dollar, an extra million dollars that important versus having five years, you know, with my kids when they're that age from like zero to five and six and seven? Mm-hmm. I'm like, nope. That's worth. That's worth it. I'll yep. pay yep. for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, how old are your kids now? So now they're seven and five. And so this last year, my son just entered kindergarten. And so mm. this is a actual, actually a unique shift into the next phase of financial independence mm-hmm. for me because now it's not so much about obviously being home and being present with the kids. Now it's about, okay, I have 24 more hours than a week that I didn't have before for for the longest time. It's a game changer. uh, It's a game changer. It's it's been, I mean, it's been, it's been bittersweet because I'm like, oh, I don't get to go to the park. Yeah. Carry my kids around and do all that stuff. But at the same time, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. (laughs) Um, And so I've been feeling that time. There's, you know, different things that I've been doing. Like, um, actually, I just started a podcast as well. Um, Okay. Okay, cool. I just started that at the beginning of the year. And building the blog, and then actually working on the book as well. So, been filling the time in with new projects and new side hustles. Yeah. And what are you teaching your kids about this whole world of financial independence? Now they don't have to rely on a rich uncle, they have a rich dad. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny that you say that. And I remember distinctly, Annie, we always talk like whenever we meet up, we're like, you know, what do we do with our kids? Like, how do we keep Mm -hmm. them balanced and centered so they're like not spoiled brats and like, (laughs) and all this stuff? Because Again, money is to a certain extent relative, right? It depends on where you live. You know, the amount of money that that we've accumulated at this point is not even that much if you're living in Northern California. (laughs) If you're living in Southern California, it's it's decent. But and then if you're living somewhere else, it's it could be like you know, you know, gobs and gobs of money. 
So it's all relative to, I think, your surroundings to a certain extent. And so what I've really kind of come to understand, I think, in terms of that, and actually taking full circle, you know, I was telling you guys that I thought I was poor when I was younger, even though like we were actually middle class on paper probably, but I felt poor. So again, I think it's relative to kind of what you want to share with your kids and how you ultimately treat them. And so my general take on it so far is to treat them with respect and telling them kind of where we are, tell them that we're very blessed, tell them that this gives you more options, more advantages. And what are you going to do with those advantages? Are you going to just take them and like go play or are you going to use that to impact the world, the people around you? And Mm -hmm. because think about all the other people that life's unfair, whether you like it or not, we don't get to choose, you know, where we're born, who we're born to. And depending on, you know, once you realize that you get to choose what you do with those gifts that you're given. And ultimately, you know, that's kind of what I've been sharing with them and telling them that money is a tool that you are going to ultimately have more of than other people likely throughout your lifetime. What are you going to do with that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That privilege is a responsibility. A hundred percent. You got to teach mm-hmm. them young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, with that, shall we transition to the investing for good impact round? Let's do it. Okay. All right. So we're going to ask you three questions about investing for good and the different ways that you're doing that. So the first question is investing in yourself. So what is one way that your investments are serving you in your life today? So one of the biggest investments I think that I did for myself and that I, that I always share with other people is really taking the time to focus on you um, in mm-hmm. terms of your own growth and your mm-hmm. own self-development. And the reason why that's important is because until you can kind of take care of yourself and really kind of grow yourself, then you're not able to take care of those around you and provide as mm-hmm. much love and support. So to me, that means, you know, taking the time to read, taking the time to get out of your comfort zone and grow, going places and interacting with other people. By nature, I'm, you know, more introverted than extroverted, but I still force myself to kind of go out there and interact with people because it's important to, I think, understand different people's perspectives as well as just make a connection. And then I'm a big fan of personal development. So like, I love, Mm -hmm. you know, going to like Tony Robbins events and and listening Mm -hmm. to audio programs that he has and whatnot. And other people similar to him, like Jim Rohn and Grant Cardone, all these different people, business leaders that have significant amount of experience that they share freely to a certain extent, you know, some things you have to pay Mm -hmm. for, but start with the free stuff. And then at some point I would say, put your money, you know, where your mouth is and spend some money. I spent, you know, probably Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of dollars on personal development courses, seminars, and other things investing in myself ultimately so that I can grow further and with the ultimate end goal of impacting more people and and sharing with others. Mm Mm -hmm. I love that. So what are, so you mentioned earlier too, and you just mentioned again that you you love reading books. What are your like top couple of favorite books that you feel like have impacted you the most? Oh, wow. There's a lot. So, (laughs) you know, there's, there's of course some of the classics like Think and Grow Rich, right? There's Rich Mm -hmm. Dad, Poor Dad, which I think, you know, there's controversy around whether it's true or not. I say, don't worry about that. Listen to the story. Right. And, right. and the story is relevant in the sense that it really helps you to understand that you can shift your mindset. Mm-hmm. Once you shift your mindset, go to another book for figuring out the tactics. And so if you want to figure out, you know, the tactics of real estate investing, you know, Gary Keller has a great book, Millionaire Real Estate Investor mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. The book that I read last year that I liked the most, I think, was um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And that was a really okay. cool book because it really talked about how to practically create habits and implement them into your life. And mm. one of the biggest, I think, components to success in anything is consistency. Mm-hmm. And so habits are such a critical part of building success because it gives you those small individual increments to, to build upon every single day. Yeah, what you do every day on an ongoing basis, whether you know it or not, defines your life and who you are and all of those things. So uh, I'll have to check that one out. That sounds like a good one. 
Okay. Second question. What is one investing strategy or hack that other people may not know about that you could share with our audience that might be helpful for them in growing their investing career? Uh, investing strategy or hack. So I think as you start to kind of grow wealth, different opportunities will open up to you. So for example, like, you know, when I was ready, I started realizing there was opportunities for real estate syndications and crowdfunding deals and other things like that. So I guess the, just be cognizant and present of mind that as you kind of grow your wealth, that you're not Mm -hmm. stuck in, you know, the typical investments that are around you. So broaden your scope, get outside of your box and realize that there's other creative things that you can do. Um, I have one friend right now who's just really killing it and he just started a business and I think he realized maybe like maybe $750,000 roughly in, in income this last year. So he has a problem of like, how do I minimize my overall tax overhead? Mm-hmm. And so when you have that problem, you ask yourself a better question, all of a sudden there's other opportunities that arise as far as like how to mitigate some of that tax burden. Um, and of course mm-hmm. you want to be, you know, ask your attorney, I mean, your, your CPA and or attorney, make sure that it's legal and within the scope of staying compliant. You don't want to obviously go outside the lines, but if it's, if it's, you know, relevant and it's legal and it can apply to you and it can save you a lot of money, then by all means, there's opportunities out there to use businesses, to use real estate, to, you know, take some of that income and shift it away from AGI or whatnot mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, and get exposure to lower tax income brackets. And, and that's the game that, you know, people that have, you know, played this game, <laughs> there's, there's the game being played, mm-hmm. it's the tax code. And the more yeah. you know about it, the, the better off you are learning about it. And you guys obviously know full well with real mm-hmm. estate, you know, that's a really great vehicle to help shelter some of that income from traditional, just normal taxes, mm-hmm. which are so impactful if you, if you don't, oh, yeah. <laughs> if you don't make mm-hmm. some shifts. Yeah. 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 And I love that you call it a game. I think most people don't even realize that mm-hmm. it can be construed that way. I mean, really it, it is a game and the tax code are the rules. And for those people mm-hmm. who take the time to really consider the rules and understand them and apply them, those are the people who get ahead. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's absolutely not cheating. It's just learning the rules. You know, the rules are mm-hmm. out there for everyone the same way. So I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know, have you read Tom Wheelwright's book um, on his, what, what's the wealth. name of the book, Annie? Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Such a good book. And that's exactly what he says in that book is, you know, you learn how to play by the rules and you'll actually see that the tax code is in your favor, but you just need to learn what those rules are yeah. and learn how to play by them. So, um, but yeah. Okay. Last question, investing in the world. So what is one thing that you are doing in your investments that are, is working to help the world or do better in the world around you? Sure. So in terms of investing into the world, of course, with real estate, you're providing housing to someone else and you know helping mm-hmm. them with their livelihood. But outside of that, I think really investing in the blog and now the podcast is a way for me to reach people that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And for me, it's really about empowering people with their money, giving them choices that they didn't know that they had prior and then yeah. having, giving them that aha moment to be like, wow, I actually have a choice. And there's so many different paths and opportunities that I didn't realize existed. And it can be fun along the way. And it can help me to mm-hmm. develop. It can help my family. It can help other people. And really trying to push that, that kind of full circle, right? And just paying it forward so that other people can pay it forward. There's a lot of people that have come before us that have done some you know, f- phenomenal things that we're really standing on their shoulders and so it's really about kind of raising the game and just, just lifting other people up at the same time. So in terms of impact and investing, I think that's where I want to see my investment go. Um, mm-hmm. And along the way, you know, I think just naturally, you know, your own assets will grow along the way as well. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But, but again, you know, back to net worth, right? You know, don't value yourself by that and your self-worth because at the end of the day, you can't take any of it with you. So you're <laughs> simply right. a steward of the money during your lifetime. So that's why it's kind of funny in some regards. If you really think about it at, at, the, at the grandest scope of it, it's not really your money. 
I think mm-hmm. none of this is really yours. <laughs> so yeah, what are you going to do with right. it? You have, you're given this opportunity, this, this beautiful gift. What are you going to do with it? And so for me, and I know you guys, I mean, it's about really putting it out there, helping other people so that you can impact other people and, and, and expand their world and increase, you know, make things better for other people. So I couldn't agree more. You can't take it with you. So you're just a steward of that money. All right. Well, <laughs> Michael, I'm sure that people will want to learn more about you. So what's the best place to go to learn more about your blog and about your new podcast? Sure. So you can find my blog at financiallyalert.com. And there you'll find, as Annie mentioned, articles about FI and FIRE, so financial independence. Um, you'll also find just broader topic personal finance articles. Now I've kind of taken a little bit broader as well as there's an interview series, which Annie's been on there and we need to get Julian there as well. Um, that talk <laughs> about their journeys to FI and, you know, all the things that they had to do to get there. And you'll see, mm-hmm. I think there's a common thread and a common pattern that, you know, it's not an overnight success. It's, it's a very mm-hmm. consistent, actionable step-by-step. It's not, you know, straight up, it's usually jagged a little bit, but it's very intentional. And I think mm-hmm. um, when people kind of read through that, they're like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. And then as far as the podcast, the podcast is called Breakthrough Millionaire. And the mm-hmm. podcast essentially is all about building wealth from the inside out. So it's a fusion of self-development and personal finance. And again, it's back to creating that right mindset so that you can build a foundation of wealth upon and so that you can ultimately make the biggest impact and, and be the best steward of that money going forward. Uh, well, to everyone who's listening, definitely check those out. Breakthrough Millionaire and FinanciallyAlert.com. Michael Kwan, creator of Financially Alert and now host of the Breakthrough Millionaire podcast. Thank you so much, Michael, for being here with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, it's Michael. Been, it's been fantastic. You guys are doing great work. Thank you. You've been listening to Investing for Good, the number one podcast for people like you who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com slash podcast. And be sure to join the Investing for Good Facebook community. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations every week. Until next time, keep investing for good.